Welcome to Giant Size Violence, a Toku comic podcast. I'm your host, Tommy. And with me today is my occasional co-host and writer of the upcoming Kickstarter comic, Harlone Bozeman, my good friend, Nate. Welcome back Hello. to the show. Happy to be here. And today we're joined by a guest that we're incredibly excited to meet. He's a seasoned writer of comics and television who's worked on almost every franchise you loved as a child. His comic career includes titles for Transformers, Star Trek, Superman, Batman, and Spider-Man, as well as TV writing credits for Agent Carter, the 2011 Thundercats, and Transformers War for Cybertron. As if that weren't all enough, he's also writer for the upcoming Overwatch 2 and showrunner for the animated series Yanu, Child of Wonder for HBO Max. Though most relevant to our show, he's also writing the first ever American comic adaptation of Common Rider with the upcoming Common Rider 01 series from Titan Comics. With all that said, I'd like to give a very warm welcome to our guest, Brandon Easton. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Hey, uh, it's really nice to be here and um, very much looking forward to this conversation. So my thank yous and just respects go to you guys. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for joining us. I'm so glad you were uh, able to join. So getting right into the subject matter here uh, with Common Rider, um, since you've worked on basically every major American franchise, uh, could you tell us a bit about your personal history with the character of Common Rider? Yeah, I mean, the funny thing about Common Rider is I knew about it like all like kind of like on the fringes of like pop culture because I've been a fan of Japanese pop culture or Asian pop culture in general since the early to mid 80s right when you had the big giant robot boom in the U.S. I was made aware of things like Gundam and things like uh, Mazinger Z and all the Brave sagas and stuff like, like Dan Cougar and a lot of the more obscure and giant robot anime titles that a lot of people don't know but when I started going to conventions in the late 80s to early 90s, you would see the original Common Rider and some of the 70s and early 80s Common Riders as bootlegs. And we had no idea what, the, I mean, I didn't know what it was. It just looked like a guy with like a praying mantis helmet on riding a motorcycle. And I was just like, what is going on here? But over the years, I started to do a little bit of research. And I learned that not only was Common Rider like deeply, deeply, deeply popular, you know, with, with Japanese audiences. But I didn't realize that it was like the number, like when I went on Wikipedia like years ago, it was like the number 57th largest franchise in human history out of like, like 300, you know, which is pretty, I mean, it was topping a lot of stuff that I thought was bigger. So I learned a lot about all the different common writers, but I was never able to really watch a series until Shout Factory started showing it and streaming it for free. And mm -hmm. I saw some of Common Rider Kuga, but the one that I've watched, you know, pretty much all of is Zero One. And I was, you know, definitely pushed in that direction when I was hired to do the book. So that really made a big difference for me in, um, you know, launching my interest and my now fandom of the Common Rider franchise. Gotcha. And I was curious. So is that all part of the reason that they're starting with zero one of all the series or is there some other big push for zero one over say like black sun or any of the other recent ones sure from what i understand and what i and what i what, what i was told that there's a belief that common writer zero one has very strong western elements to it because in my mind as i look at it i feel like zero one 
would would fit on a CW network because everybody's really young and pretty. Oh, okay. It's a CW aesthetic. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And there's something to it that's it's I mean, the guy who plays Aruto, he, he's very likable. Like most of the characters in the show are very likable. It's not a difficult thing to penetrate. Some of the other shows, you know, for better or for worse, don't look like they cost a lot of money. Some of the other shows, I feel like, unless you were dealing with very, very young audiences in the U.S., they would kind of write it off as silly. You know, even people who grew up with the Power Rangers or Super Sentai, you know, properties, they may not give Kamen Rider the same chance, older Kamen Riders, the same chance they gave Power Rangers. But Zero One looks new, feels new, has a very comedic element to it. Like I said, everybody is very good looking, which, you know, matters a lot to Western audiences. (laughs) And the action scenes are very Dragon Ball Z-ish. So I feel like it, it's very accessible. Even for someone like myself, who has, I don't know if I have a pedigree in you know, loving anime and manga and Japanese pop culture, but I feel like for, even for someone like myself, it was easy for me to grasp onto it and understand what was going on. And with some of the other ones I've seen, and this is not a disrespectful thing, but just from based on my own aesthetics and the things I like to look at, some of the other ones are not as accessible, nor do they look as, you know, well done in some cases as Zero One does. Mm-hmm. So I, th- I think that makes it a lot more accessible to Western audiences. Yeah. Now, since I know this one's going to be a four-issue miniseries with a few one-shots, um, down the line, like in your research, have there been any other writer series that have really stuck out to you that like, you'd love to adapt that someday, bring to the U.S.? Well, I think the, um... Hey everyone, Future Tommy here. Uh, We had some connection issues on our Zoom call, most of which I was able to edit around, but sadly, this question, which is probably the one I was most excited to ask Brandon about, uh, we lost a good chunk of his answer. As he's about to cut back in here, he had just finished telling us that his choice would be Kamen Rider Double, the two-in-one detective-themed writer series that's recently gotten anime adaptation as Futo P.I. on Crunchyroll, but I'll let him cut in and take it from here. Emergence One, I think that had, because they just made that into an anime, I think that would be a good one to try to bring to audiences now. But we have to see how this one plays out because there is a lot of interest. And mm-hmm. I've garnered more interest for my Kamen Rider Zero One work than I have for even Superman and Batman, which is still stunning to me. I didn't realize there would be such a fan appreciation and kind of a fan shock. Like people were like stunned when they found out they were doing this. And building on the success, I think of like the Power Rangers comics, if the the, 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 the Kamen Rider stuff does well, I think you will see other books, but we got to see how this one does, mm-hmm. you know? And I don't know which direction. I also feel like there's a desire based on what I, what I understand to create new Kamen Rider franchises based on Western characters as opposed to Japanese characters. Like we could have a North American based Kamen Rider series or show or concept, not even a show, but a concept that could live in a graphic novel format more so than a a TV series, which, you know, has a financial, a larger financial cost attached. Okay. So So similar to the, some sort of Ultraman comics that Marvel's doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I think a lot of that has also to do with the fact that um, Hideki Anno, you know, the you know, creator and director of the Evangelion franchise, he's been rebooting, you know, he did Shin Godzilla, 
He did Shin Ultraman, and now that he's doing Shin Kamen Rider. So I think that that helped a lot. And, you know, in the, in the Western world, all of this stuff that I'm talking about is still such a niche. Outside of Power Rangers, you know, um, Ultraman is very niche. You know, Kamen Rider is very niche. So you have to see if fan demand and fan financial support will actually, you know, kick in. And I think that's where everybody's, I think that's where everyone's, of the powers that be, they're most concerned with seeing the financial reception of the Zero One comic before we go in any other direction, if that makes any sense. Okay. Nice. And yeah, I know Nate and I have had conversations about that since the Power Rangers comic took off. Like, all right, now where's Common Rider? Like, there's so much to mine here. But how do you personally wind up in the seat as the writer of Common Rider? Absolutely. Um, I know people over on the Bandai Namco side that I met years ago. In fact, I met some of the um, folks in charge of North American licensing for Bandai Namco at WonderCon in Anaheim about maybe, I want to say maybe three years ago. It was right when I had finished writing the scripts for season one of Transformers War for Cybertron, Siege. And this is before it was released, but I introduced myself to some of those folks because I always go to the Bandai Namco, Namco booth because as I said earlier, I'm a big, big Gundam fan. So I would always just hang over there and look at the, you know, the, uh, you know all the things in cases that I can't afford and just like, you know, take pictures and stuff. But I, I met some of the folks over there. We've been talking for years. And when they just when they started looking for a writer to do this, I was on that very short list of writers. And luckily, my I was finishing up at Blizzard at the time. So I had an opening in my schedule. It was right before I started working at uh, working doing Ianu for HBO Max. So I had this like little hole in my schedule where I was able to step in and start developing ideas based on the pre-existing concepts that they wanted for the Common Writer Zero One comic. Now, on the topic of like coming right off of Blizzard or Overwatch Two for this, um, I noticed there's quite a bit of similarity between the world of Overwatch and the world of Common Writer Zero One, and that they both revolve around robots or androids trying to integrate into society and the issues that arise when that happens. Do you feel like your work on Overwatch is bleeding into Common Rider or even vice versa? No, I can give you a really good answer for that one. And I would say absolutely not. <laughs> because when I started on when I started working at Blizzard, Overwatch 2 had been in development five years before I'd even stepped into Blizzard. Mm-hmm. Half of the game story had been written, but there was, you know, there's been some issues behind the scenes, which, you know, some of which have been reported on, many of which have not. But when I got in there, um, I started writing about this, the stuff I started writing was about 45% into the game story. So there was no, I had no idea I was going to be working on Common Rider. There was no connection whatsoever. The story for Overwatch 2, the main game story, had been developed at least seven years ago. Oh, wow. you know, and they didn't pull the trigger on it until about five years ago. So that's how that plays out. So no, it has nothing to do with each other. I think if anything would inspire, you know, the stories of Overwatch 2 or even anything in Kamen Rider Zero One, it could be Blade Runner. Because when I first started uh, working on and start, first started watching Zero One, you know, opening credits is basically, those are replicants, you know? And I was like, oh my God, this is the same general concept that was, you know, that came up in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which got obviously adapted into Blade Runner. So I would say those themes of, 
intelligence, artificial intelligence, and the singularity between that and the human spirit, you know, those are old themes. And I just think a lot of people pick up on them, including the creators of Overwatch 2, as well as some of the people who created uh, Zero One. Now, I felt like Overwatch has a world that, uh, at least with its characters being kind of borderline superheroes, it feels Mm -hmm. like something you would see at Marvel and DC, um, just without all of the pre-existing content to look into for these characters. Mm-hmm. And I feel like that kind of bleeds in a little bit with this, some of your other work with pulling these more obscure, more obscure in America icons like Common Rider or Vampire Hunter D. I'd like to know how you go about like getting in the mindset or uh, figuring out how to write these characters that have such well-designed personalities, but haven't really uh, had any stories to let you know who they are. Sure. Um, it's walking a razor's edge between several groups of people, usually the editors, the licensors, and the actual creative team you're working with, like the artists and, you know, and pencilers, inkers, the whole nine yards. With something like Vampire Hunter D, which I did the graphic, the, the first and only Western graphic novel for, you know, I knew Vampire Hunter D from the first two films, also knew, knew Vampire Hunter D from the novels. With someone, with something like Vampire Hunter D, he doesn't change very much. He is pretty much the same character in every story as he gets closer to his goal of eradicating all the vampires or the nobility, as they call it, right? What you want to do, if you, if you read any Vampire Hunter D story, everyone around him is impacted by his presence. He does not change. He does not grow, necessarily. He's not learning any life lessons. He's just like basically a force of nature, like a hurricane or tornado headed toward trying to wipe out all the vampires, Right. So the challenge in something like that is coming up with a compelling, you know, A, B, like a B and C plot around his journey, right? Something like, for example, I wrote Judge Dredd or Superman or Batman. Like all of them have benchmarks. All of them have bullet points of who they are as characters and you build a scenario around them. Superman is not going to necessarily grow. Batman is not going to grow. Judge Dredd never grows. You know, um, working on Star Trek, you know, I know Star Trek backwards and forwards. So when you have the voices in your head, you just have to create a new scenario for them. Now, Star Trek is a morality play. So you do have to learn a life lesson and people do have to grow based on their experiences. But it it just becomes a a part of using your talents and your knowledge of the property. And also a lot of fans don't understand this. And I mean, it's in general. Like when anytime a writer is hired to write a pre-existing property, you're not given carte blanche to do whatever you want. There are usually ideas in place either by the licensor, the owner, or the editors who have hired you to write it. You're just not coming in saying, I'm going to do whatever I want. No, that's not how it works. So in the case of Zero One, there was a framework I was given based on the events of the shows and the movies. And we decided to make it easier for newer readers or people who have never seen any common writer to be able to pick this up and be like, okay, I, I get what's happening. And that was the hard part. So we set the story between, I think it's between episodes six and 12. So he's not going to have any of the keys. Um, you're only going to see the keys that have appeared between one and 12. You're not going to see any of the later armors. You're not going to see anything new. It's, it's just very contained so that we don't have 
15 different keys popping in and out and people not understanding how the hell the belt works and any of that stuff. So that's basically what's happening. So by framing zero one in a very specific place and time, we were able to tell a story that's not impacted by later continuity within the TV series. So that's how that worked. Gotcha. Yeah, you actually already answered one of my later questions then. I meant to ask where this takes place in relation to the show. I would like to ask, though, how familiar with the series should a reader be? Or is this completely new reader friendly? I mean, uh, that's a great question. I was struggling with that on every page I wrote. You know, I feel that Titan Comics and Stonebot Comics is going to do whatever they can within the first couple of pages to kind of give you a backstory. But I do believe wholeheartedly that anyone interested in this, you don't have to, but I would at least do maybe a search on Wikipedia, maybe jump on to Shout Factory and watch the pilot for free, or at least the first two episodes. You don't have to do it, but I think it helps to understand the tone because where I, where I think a lot of people are going to get put off who don't watch Common Rider, particularly Zero One, is how crazy the tone is. Like the show and I'm assuming, obviously, you, you folks have seen it. You know, some episodes are really silly and corny and really comedic. And then some episodes are really, really heavy emotionally and get really dark and, and gut punches. And, you know, to have a show that you can have one episode that has all of that in it. American comics fans, particularly, especially American superhero comics fans, may not be used or accustomed to a comic having all those different tones within one issue. And I think that's really the challenge is to understand this is not, you know, something that's made up out of the blue. We are trying to fit in with the pre-existing mythos of the zero one universe. And as long as folks have an understanding of that, I feel there won't be any problems jumping on board. Otherwise folks are gonna be like, oh, I don't get what's going on. But I think we're gonna do a good job of bringing people and getting them up to speed. On that note of like kind of nailing that tone as seen in the show, I've noticed that in your work, you've really kind of written the polar extremes uh, as far as adaptations of well-loved characters from like the super mature adult audience, mm. Transformers were for Cybertron or Watson and Holmes to like the super kid-friendly Transformers rescue bots and Marvel yeah. action <laughs> Spider-Man. <laughs> How do you go about balancing those like I guess doing that switch from writing the mature version to the like kids bop version of these characters. Yeah, well, you don't get paid if you don't do it, right? <laughs> the, the trick. I mean, to be absolutely, I mean, I know it sounds ridiculous to say that, but the reality is this. Again, I always re reiterate this point whenever I do panels or interviews. I am just a work for hire, you know, and I don't. They don't. They don't have to keep me on board. There are many other people who could step in, right? So when you get there, they tell you what they want. And if you have any skill as a creator and as a writer, you have to match what they want. And if you don't match what they want, you get a lot of notes back from the editors. Because basically you hand a script in, they go over it and tell you what works and what doesn't. Most of us don't fight back because obviously they know what they're doing and we have to match what they want. Only a few times are you allowed to kind of push back. Like I'll give you an example. When I was doing the Marvel action Spider-Man series for IDW and Marvel, I didn't realize that there was a Marvel, you know, edict that there should be no hot dogs or slices of pizza in any Marvel comic. Oh, really? <laughs> I wasn't aware of this. Wow. I think, 
I don't know if it's still that way, but when I was working on that book and I had Peter, Gwen and Miles in Times Square getting a hot dog, you know, like on, on, on the corner of like 40th and 7th in Manhattan, the Marvel notes, and it was like no hot dogs. And it was like in bold. And I was like, <laughs> what the bloody hell are they talking about? And then I said, okay, well, I guess they'll get a slice of pizza. And it was like, nah, well, you can have a slice of pizza, but if you, you know, if, if you can avoid pizza, but definitely no hot dogs. And I was like, okay, whatever, fine. I mean, I was like, hey, it was so weird. It was like, what? Those but, are literally the only two foods I can picture Spider-Man eating in his costume. Like that's. Exactly. But they had, a, they had some kind of rule. And so the trick is I thought about it a little bit. I did get a pizza slice in, but that was my victory. But at the end of the day, the way that you do it is you listen to what your editors say. And again, it comes back to your skill as a creator. And I think for me, I mean, I've grown up watching all kinds of material. You know, I went to film school um, over, the, you know, many years ago. I didn't just watch American movies. I watched films from every corner of the planet, independent films, experimental films, shorts, animation, black and white, film shot on eight millimeter, 16 millimeter, film shot on VHS. Well, that, that wouldn't be film, that'd be video. But the point is that I have a lot of influences and I'm able to use those to kind of like help with my storytelling. So as a kid, I grew up watching all the Hanna-Barbera cartoons. All that stuff is still in my head. I used to I used to be a school teacher. I used to teach middle school kids. All that stuff is still in my head. So I remember what it was like to be a kid. And I remember the type of content that appeals to boys and girls, not just boys and not just girls, but boys and girls and their parents. And, it, and if you can capture some of that, then you're fine. Because all these stories all are about either protecting themselves or protecting people they care about. And that's a universal theme. And that can go in an X-Men, you know, R-rated X-Men comic, which, you know, whatever, or it could go into like, you know, a Warhammer story, which is absolutely NC-17, you know, or it could go into Common Rider, caring about your friends and caring about yourself and protecting the people you care about. So superhero stuff usually boils down to one of those two things, caring about yourself or caring about the people you care about or protecting the people you care about. I think the most uh, the most varied work of yours is basically everything under the Transformers umbrella. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes. I, I know a lot of people classify the Transformers as superheroes, and they're not totally wrong to. But how do you feel it compares, like approaching writing Transformers compared to writing known superheroes? Well, trans that's a fantastic question because Transformers can be anything to anybody. Because just like with Gundam, there's like 25 different iterations of Transformers and it spans from 1984 to like right now, there's new stuff like Earth Spark, you know, and the Cyberverse was out and we had War for Cybertron before that, we had the Power of the Primes trilogy. And then we, it, it, you could keep going back and back and back and back. You had the, uh, what was the one on um, Transformers Prime? You know, I mean, you keep going back, you got the Beast Wars. I mean, you go all the way back to generation one. And it's, and not to mention the Japanese series because there was a ton of mm -hmm. Japanese original uh, Transformers shows. Um, I think the way Transformers works is that there are people who adore Generation One, like myself, and there are people who don't. But for the people who don't, there's plenty of stuff for them to get into, right? And there are people who love Beast Wars, but don't really like, let's say, Cyberverse or Power of the Proms. There are people who like War for Cybertron, but don't like Rescue Bots, you know? 
And I feel that with the exception of rescue bots, all the Transformers material I've ever worked on has kind of allowed me to use a generation one voice, you know, because I did like a, a Transformers Armada one shot many years ago. And even oh. though it was Armada, it still nice. felt close enough to G1 to where the voices in my head weren't any different. You know what I mean? Mm. So I feel that I don't think I would be good for every Transformers series, but I was good for War for Cybertron because that's the story I personally, as, as a kid, as an adult storyteller, that's the Transformers story I wanted to, always wanted to tell. And by the grace of God or whatever, the universe just put me in the right place at the right time to get on that show. So for me, that was like my crowning achievement in the Transformers universe, as far as I'm concerned. On those like dream Transformers jobs, like, yeah, between getting to write like the reimagining of their origin and War for Cybertron or yeah. like you wrote in your afterwards of Transformers Deviations, the what if Optimus lived in Transformers, the movie comic. <laughs> yes. Uh, like you just mentioned these uh, like incredible dream can true story opportunities you've had, like since you've gotten to do these ones that like you've always wanted to do, like, is there still a Transformers story inside you you're itching to tell or are you more going to fall into the camp of like, okay, they need a story and they can give me what they need and I'll fill in the blanks. If I'm ever given the chance to get back into any Transformers material, I feel like I hit every beat that I wanted to hit in War for Cybertron. Mm -hmm. You know, I got to tell the story of Megatron as a freedom fighter, not just a despot. You know, I wanted to show how bad I me, mean, you know, they hired me. I didn't develop it. You know, I was just one of the writers hired. But the fact that Cybertron looked like a true post-apocalyptic landscape. I mean, we had shots with Autobot bodies impaled on pikes. You know what I mean? Like this was like <laughs> Caligula slash, you know, Vlad TP's, you know, the original Dracula kind of brutality, but done on robots, which is why we could get away with it. You know, <laughs> not like we could ever have, you know, Spider-Man on a pike. You know, it's not going to happen. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like I've told the Optimus Prime story and the Megatron story and the Ultra Magnus story that I wanted to tell. There's not a, there's not a lot of other characters with the exception of maybe I mean, I, I can't even think of anybody else I really want to delve into. I mean, I really like um, Astro Train. I like the Constructicons. <laughs> I really like... Um, a lot of the generation one Autobots. I like Skylinks a lot. You know, I love the Dinobots, but I can't think of any definitive story that's out there that hasn't been told for those characters. So I think that in the weirdest kind of way, I, I, I said all I could say about Transformers as a creator, to be quite honest. Mm -hmm. okay. As for the more wild takes though, like you've uh, mentioned the anime series that didn't get adapted both here and in that same afterward, would you have any desire to adapt any particular one of those, like say Transformers Headmasters or one of the others that's just a drastically different beast? Yeah, I think, oh God, that's a man, you opened up a channel. <laughs> okay, this is, my, this is my thought on the, uh, the post-American trilogy, which would be Headmasters, Master Force and Victory, right? Mm -hmm. I think Headmasters, the Japanese version, if, and by the way, folks, you can find this stuff online. I'm not going to tell you where to get it. I'm not a fan of <laughs> or anything, but you can, if you look up head, Headmasters, you can find the opening credits. You can even watch the episodes, right? Headmasters started off very strong and then got really stupid a little mm -hmm. bit later, in my opinion. Master Force, I think, is unwatchable. <laughs> really? It's, 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 it's too, the robot designs are gorgeous, but the storytelling is just, 
absolutely atrocious. It's guilty it's, pleasure of mine, personally. Hey, quite. Hey, everybody's entitled. I'm just saying that. I, but I, I, I do it. agree. It's radically different. The, the robot designs are beautiful. I, I just <laughs> didn't like the story. Now, Victory, if, if I had to choose any, I would say Transformers Victory, the art style was much better. The storytelling was really, really, really smooth. It wasn't great, but it was much smoother than Master Force, in my opinion. And I think the characters were a little bit more mature, especially with like Victory Saber and Star Saber and all those characters. Those designs are fantastic. I think, and I, and I didn't include, by the way, in my Ultra Magnus you know, miniseries, I included um, uh, uh, Victory Leo um, into the storyline because we could. I didn't realize we could use them. I think that, I don't know if it would make a good show, but I think a Transformers Victory, like six issue series, just kind of showing that what that world looks like. I would, I think I could do a lot with it because you could kill characters. You could wipe people out. You could blow up half a city and nobody would care. It wouldn't be like, you know, you're getting in trouble because Hasbro would be mad that you wiped out a city with humans in it. No, you could do that because they did that. You know, they would blow up planets. It was awesome. I loved Victory. You know, it was pretty cool. As far as both getting to write things that have hardly seen American audiences before to like major franchises with Star Trek or the big three superheroes or, or like taking over Mr. Miracle after Tom King. Like, I'd really like to know what you found to be like the most daunting writing task or writing assignment you've gotten so far. Ooh, uh, well, my Warhammer stuff, which has been mainly prose, my Warhammer 40K specifically was some of the hardest stuff I've ever written in my entire life because I know Warhammer, but Warhammer, it's like, it's like trying to add an, another book to the Holy Bible. You know, <laughs> it's like, there's so much. And if you say the wrong things or do the wrong things or write the character wrong or mispronounce something or set it in a wrong planet, people will come down on you hard. And some of those fans go a little bit too far. Let me put it like that, especially the Warhammer 40K crowd. I think Transformers fans are worse, but 40K <laughs> crowd, they're like, they're ready to go a lot quicker. Like they, they just get insane real fast. Mm. And when I was writing that, that was the hardest thing I ever wrote because I wrote a couple of stories, a, a few stories actually for Warhammer 40K. Only one of them got published. And it wasn't because, you know, I, I you know, I hit it. I, I don't think I hit a home run fault with all three of those stories. So um, I would just say Warhammer was tough. Uh, Mr. Miracle was not that difficult because I wasn't doing the uh, Scott Free. I was doing uh, the Shiloh Norman version. And they gave me a wider berth to kind of reimagine re and reboot the character with Shiloh. So, and I, and I know, and I know DC universe pretty well. So it wasn't too difficult for me to step in there and uh, work on that. But yeah, Warhammer 40 K literally was the hardest thing I've ever written to this day. Wow. Would not have expected that, but I, I have heard about the Warhammer fans. So can't say I'm too surprised. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now you've, done quite a bit of podcasting yourself uh, with mm -hmm. multiple like writing guide or advice podcasts. And it seems like over these last two years has been where uh, like your career's taken off even further with some of your most recent work. Have there been any major lessons within that year or two that you'd like to share here or in a future podcast? God, I mean, yeah, I need you to be a little bit more specific. Yeah. I mean, like as a writer, um, or do you mean like as an independent, like, how do you mean that? Hmm. Uh, well, I know a lot of your 
a lot of the advice I've seen from you has been about like pushing through what feels like failure or like just getting out there. And now that you've sure. kind of seen the fruit of pushing through that, I, I'm curious how your perspectives maybe changed or what you might say to those same audiences if you picked up one of those podcasts again. Got you. Okay. So I'll, I'll give you a little bit of backstory. So I had a really rough time in the industry, you know, and people always tell you these stories. I mean, you, if you watch any, uh, what do you call it, uh, awards broadcast and you, you know, somebody wins a writing award or whatever award, and they'll tell you, you can't believe how much I've sacrificed, blah, blah, blah. It, it sounds cliche, but unfortunately, some cliches have the ring of truth, right? After I worked on Agent Carter, which I thought was going to be the biggest and most important part of my entire career, which it was at that point, I thought that would propel me to new heights. But because of all kinds of weird things that happened in the business, I ended up further behind after Agent Carter than I was beforehand. In fact, as of probably the middle of 2017, I felt like my entire career was over. I mean, really. I mean, things had just crashed and burnt beyond all recognition. I mean, ashes wouldn't even be a, a appropriate description of where, where my career was at that time. I was like worm, worm excrement, you know. It was horrible. And I mean that in every tense of that you know, phrase. It was absolutely horrible. A lot of my colleagues who I thought were my friends totally vanished. I mean, it was very true, the cliche about once you're hot, everybody gives a you know, crap about you. And then once you're not hot, everyone vanishes. And that actually happened to me, right? So 2017 comes and goes, 2018 rolls around, and I was really considering packing up and returning back to the East Coast where I'm from. And the crazy thing is I saw, and, I, and this is going to sound weird, but I saw Hamilton, you know, the play, and literally, and again, I don't want to sound like a cliche, but it really changed my life because the, the idea that somebody could create something like that and Lin-Manuel Miranda has just as many hours in a day that I do. You know, he doesn't have 30 hours. He has the same 24 hours that we all do. And the fact that he was able to throw caution to the wind and create something so, in my mind, magical, and as a former history teacher, so incredibly amazing, I left that theater thinking, you know what, I've got to get myself together. I got to get out of the doldrums of my self-pity and get back into the swing of things. Luckily, the Transformers gig presented itself not too long after that. Now, I will say this without any kind of pretension. That show saved my life, or at least my career, my writing career. War for Cybertron was kind of like me getting back on, getting back on the saddle because people saw what I did there. My name got back out there. I hyped myself tremendously. And, you know, I started getting attention again. That helped me get the gig over at uh, Blizzard. While I was at Blizzard, I got to work on Overwatch 2, uh, Hearthstone, and some other stuff that I can't mention, you know, yet. But I got to work on a lot of high-quality material with high-quality creators who know everybody in the business. Because business ain't that big. You know, a lot of people say, you know, it's such a huge industry. No, it's not. A lot, everybody kind of knows everybody. Everybody has heard about everybody. And if somebody doesn't like you, they could easily say, oh, I heard he's a jerk. Or I heard she's a jackass. And guess what? Without any evidence, people will start to believe it and you won't get hired. You know, things like that happen every single day in this town. And with that said, um, I took every win I got, every good piece of feedback that I received while at Blizzard and put that into the world as much as I could. 
Then the Ayanu project came to me, which is a whole other story. It's a longer story. And I was able to knock that out the park when I adapted the graphic novel into the first two episodes. Right. Then I had in the middle, in the middle of all this, I got to write a movie for the Chinese market called Killing Beta. I think they just got into production, but I was one of the few, if not the only American ever to have a script go through the Chinese government censorship office and pass. Right. Which means that the CIA probably has a file on that. I'm not kidding. <laughs> they would have to. So then in the middle of all that, I got offered to rewrite a screenplay called Takeover. That was uh, that stars Quavo from Amigos. And that was originally written by Jeb Stewart, the guy who wrote Die Hard and The Fugitive. So I rewrote that guy. And that movie is being shot right now in Atlanta. And, and I say all this to say that the lesson, to answer your question, the lesson is that this is a what they call a last laugh business, meaning that if you hang around long enough, your success will be a slap to the face of everybody who ever tried to stop you, whoever put you down, whoever demeaned you. Persistence and determination are the only things that keep a career. You don't have to be the most talented person, although talent helps, because we've seen plenty of marginally talented people, talented people make billions of dollars, right? You don't give up. Do not give up. That's, that's the lesson, that you have to be your biggest cheerleader. You have to become a little bit selfish. And what I mean by that is, I don't mean it in a, in a, in a sinful version of selfishness, but selfishness in this other definition is self preservation. You have to do things to protect yourself and you have to figure out who are your friends, who are your allies, and who are people who will never, ever, 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 ever help you out. And that process is where a lot of people flunk out because they're not ready for the rejection. They're not ready to deal with the duplicity. They're not ready to deal with the lies that exist within the creative spaces of Hollywood, what we call the entertainment industry. So that was the lesson learning how to protect myself and learning how to be self-sufficient and not worry so much about friends, allies, or enemies. Just concentrate on what you have to do because at the end of the day, what you put out in the world is the only thing that's going to get you your next job. And that's, and that's how it works in a nutshell. Gotcha. And I think your career really reflects that with how everything seems like a step up and I mean, I found you through Common Rider, but yeah, then uh, like just doing my own research. Oh, wow. This guy has evolved quite a bit. He's on Overwatch 2 as well. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yeah. Working in video games was also, I mean, you mentioned Overwatch 2. We've mentioned this a few times, but Overwatch 2, that, that was also a, big, a game changer for me. No pun intended, but it was a game changer <laughs> for me because I didn't understand the creative process of gaming you know, of game design, narrative design. I mean, all that, all my time at Blizzard, what that really did for me was give me an additional set of skills that will only help me in the future. You know, it, it was a hell of an experience. I'll tell you that much in a good way. Now we know Common Rider Zero One is hitting shelves on November 13th, but- 23rd, uh, I believe. Oh, 23rd, my apologies. Right before Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, that is. <laughs> mm. But are there any other- upcoming projects from you or your colleagues that you'd like to promote? Well, other than, I mean, Ayanu, Child of Wonder, I mean, it's not going to be on TV for a while, but we're currently producing that. Um, in terms of stuff that I have, wow. Um, outside of Common Rider, you know, I mean, like I said, the Takeover movie is being shot now in Atlanta. I think it'll be out mm -hmm. next year. You know, um, I don't know about the Chinese film, Killing Beta, but it's a sci-fi 
action time travel slasher thriller believe it or not that's actually what it is all my recent material like my batman stuff that's already been released this year my superman stuff was released last year um overwatch 2 has just been released the season one version so that's out right now you can download it for there's a free-to-play version but the story part of overwatch 2 i don't think it's going to be released until sometime next year with the actual Mm -hmm. you know uh you know cgi story with the little movies (laughs) all that's coming out next year yeah well with all that said i really thank you for your time today brandon um yeah you've honestly made this an incredibly easy interview you have a lot of interesting stuff to say and i'm very much looking forward to what you have to say through common writer well i really appreciate it and all all i ever ask is just you know for folks to have an open mind and i hope i really hope you you all like it you know i mean we're doing the best we can to make sure that that comic can speak to both the japanese audience who strangely enough are very excited about this and the American fan base or North American fan base, and even in Europe too. And I also want to say thank you for your time. I mean, you know, it took us a little while to get this together, but I'm very glad that we did. And I'm always happy to come back to discuss my writing career and also give advice to aspiring creators. I mean, I, as you know, I have two podcasts. One is called Writing for Rookies. And the other one is called The Two Brandons, which is with Brandon Thomas, who's working on Aquaman. I think you're cutting and a out bunch there. of stuff over at Milestone at DC. Um, he's a fantastic guy. Um, and I really like to open the door a bit, crack the door a bit so people see the reality. I think what the problem is, especially in pop culture today with toxic fandom, is that so many fans are astonishingly and incredibly ignorant of the creative process. They literally don't know what they're talking about. There's a joke in Hollywood or the entertainment industry that says you can tell how intelligent a person is by who and what they blame if they don't like a movie or a TV show, you know, mm. <laughs> blaming Marvel. Like when they say Marvel did this, Marvel didn't do it. Marvel Studios did it. And specifically the people that Marvel Studios hired did it. DC does not make movies. Warner Brothers makes movies, not DC. DC is an imprint. DC does not have money to make movies. They're, they're a publisher. They barely sell comics. How can a how can a comic book company make a three hundred million or two hundred fifty million dollar film? Right. It's that people don't do any research on how the business actually operates, and I think that is the actual issue. People don't know what they're talking about. You know what I mean? Literally, they actually don't know what they're talking about, and that's where the issues kick in. And if I, I feel that if people would just take a minute out of their day. And I hate to say this, but shut up, take a minute out the day and just say, OK, what's Variety? Variety is an industry newspaper. What's the Hollywood Reporter? That's the other industry newspaper. What's Deadline.com? That's another one. These are websites and publications where you can actually learn how the financial side of the business works, because I say this in every panel. Everyone laughs. This is not called show art. It's called show business emphasis on business, underline business. Anything that happens in this town is because of money. They don't care about what the fans think. I have been in many writer's rooms. I've written two movies. There's never been a moment where I was like, huh, I wonder what the fans are going to think about this. No, that's not a consideration. And I wish more folks understood no one's trying to piss them off personally if they have a woman character or if they have a trans character 
or if there's somebody from the LBGTQ community. It's like, no, we're looking at the world as it is, you know? And it's like, that to me is where I think the change has to happen. Fans need to grow up a little bit. And once that occurs, I think we'll have a healthier conversation. And that's why I try to open the door, like talking about, you know, how I got things, how things come about, how it works behind the scenes in a video game company. If you, if you ever want to talk about any of that stuff, I'm more than happy to come back and shed some light on that. Yeah, we'd love to have you. And I'd especially love to hear from you once the comic is out and see how things are on the uh, other side of publishing a Tokusatsu comic. Yeah, well, if, if December works for you, I'll, I'll have some time in December after the book drops. And, you know, I'll, I'll be doing, I think I'll be doing a signing at Anime New York. I don't know if any of you are going to be there, but if you're there, I'll be at the Bandai Namco booth, most likely. I'll be hanging around. I'll be doing signings. And um, if you have a video camera or whatever, GoPro, whatever you want, I'd be happy to do something live there if you're going to be at Anime New York. Yeah, uh, I'm in the Midwest myself, so probably won't gotcha. be making that. But uh, yeah, should have free time in December and would love to have you back. Sounds great. So let's do it. All right. Well, we'll uh, be hearing from Brandon again then, hopefully once Common Rider is out. Uh, thank you again, Brandon, for joining us today. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you. And yeah, I can't wait to talk to you after the book release. Same here. Uh, thank you so much. I really appreciate this. And thank you, Nate, for joining us again as well. Welcome. <laughs> pleasure to meet you both. And to everyone listening at home, go out and pre-order Common Rider Zero One from Titan Comics at your local comic shop. Having read a bit of the previews, I can already tell it's shaping up to be a very interesting book. If you have requests or recommendations for other content you'd like to hear us cover, you can send those our way on social media. You can find us as Giant Size Violence on Facebook or on Twitter as at Ultramegacast. I'd like to thank you once again for giving our podcast a chance and give a shout out to Ray Day Parade and Dark Moon Home Video for designing our logo and cover photos. Our intro and outro music is Your Nace Kid by Demon Dice from their album Alcatraz. You can check out the new EP, Shut Up, Get Happy, on iTunes and Spotify. We hope you join us again as we continue to explore the movies and shows this comic draws influence from. But until then, take care and remember to do your part in preventing the spread of the kaiju virus. Just a brick in the wall. La da 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 da.